Hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of HSJ's Health Check podcast. My name is Nicholas Carding and I'm standing in for Annabelle who is away this week. It's been a busy week in the NHS tech sector with a former NHS tech leader back in the news and there have also been some keynote speeches by the existing health tech leadership at a conference in London this week. We'll bring you all you need to know about that. Also in today's episode, we explore the latest worrying story in maternity care, where concerns are being raised about the safety of mothers-to-be and their babies. Joining me to discuss this are HSJ correspondents Jota Laura and Alison Moore. We start with the latest from the NHS tech world, and um, this week a, a former leader of NHS X, uh, remember them, uh, is back on the scene. Uh, Joe, uh, tell us more. Hi, yes, so uh, Matthew Gold, formerly um, Digital Policy Chief at NHSE and, and Department of Health. Uh, he's been appointed to the advisory board of Contexa, uh, which is a UK-based firm. Um, I suppose the interesting thing about Contexa is that as far as we know, uh, we believe that they're involved in the bidding process for the federated data platform. Um, and that's as part of a consortium with IBM. Um, so Matthew Gold applied to the uh, advisory committee on, on business appointments way back in January to do with this uh, potential appointment. Um, he sought advice on that. Um, and yeah, it's now been confirmed that he is on the advisory board of Contexa. Yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, Matthew Gould, so he left NHSX, I think, was it in 2022, early 2022? Um, and I remember he got a job uh, at the London Zoo, of all places, which was <laughs> quite a, a, a different kind of career move to what many NHS execs go on to, to take. Um, mm. So, yeah, w- tell us about Quantexa a bit more. You mentioned that they, because they're not a, a firm which was associated with the NHS earlier, really, is it? What, what, what do they do specifically? Yeah, so their, their, their main thing is data. Um, so one of the things that came out in this ACOBA um, letter that, that was made public this week was that, that they do have a relationship with government through the Crown Commercial Service. So they provide uh, big data and analytics um services through through our commercial service um as you say though not a massive player in the nhs previously seems to be the case now that they're, they are looking to get involved in that space though mm. and for listeners who uh may not be quite aware of the the federated data platform which you mentioned uh we think quantexa are bidding for um maybe just quickly sort of explain why why that's uh important and what why that makes this particular appointment a bit more interesting than perhaps it would otherwise be yeah so the the federated data platform or fdp this is kind of um, nhs england's big flagship tech policy um tech project for for the coming years so um we understand that the, the contract's going to be worth sort of 480 million pounds over seven years i think mm. um and essentially that that's to provide this data platform that's going to sit centrally and the nhs organizations can feed into and extract data from mm. um and this is sort of the direction of travel that nhs and dh are wanting to go in um mm. it's been the subject of quite a lot of controversy um it's made national news it's made uh uh, quite a lot of new publications and that's mostly due to the role of, of Palantir um, who are a 
US-based company founded by Peter Thiel, who's you know got links to Donald Trump, and uh, this company's been involved in with the CIA in America and the, in the defense industry. Um, and essentially, they got involved with the NHS during the COVID-19 pandemic. They offered to build what became the COVID-19 data store for essentially for free. It was a one pound contract to provide the NHS, uh, the COVID-19 data store. Um, and the controversy really is that they've gone on to win, I think about 60 or, or 70 million pounds worth of contracts from that initial work mm. without tender. Um, and, and the sort of belief is that they were one of the key front runners um, to, to bid for this federated data platform contract. That's right. Yeah. And I, obviously we ran a story a couple of weeks ago where Palant, we, we reported the Palantir and uh, Quantex uh, were still in the sort of final stages of the competition. Um, I think we think Quantex are working with IBM, uh, while Palantir have, have got their own bid with one or two other companies involved. So um, there was also an interesting line, Joe, in your story. Um, and I don't know how unusual this is, but it felt like it was unusual. Um, when Acoba uh, were looking at Matthew Gold's uh, application to join Quantexa, they they consulted uh, Palantir about it. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So it, it seems unusual. Um, from what I can understand, Matthew Gold was involved in the process to to use emergency powers to to grant Palantir that initial contract in the pandemic. Um, and as I said, they've they've sort of gone on to provide the sort of basis for what the FDP is going to be. Um, and now he's joining what seems to be one of their main competitors. So uh, the Department of Health did confirm that they approached the UK head of Palantir um, and asked whether they would have any objections to, to Matthew Gold joining, which apparently they didn't. So mm. uh, it might have just been a, a case of sort of covering their bases, but um, I'm not sure how usual that is to approach a competitor and ask if they're happy with it. Yeah, it's very it's very sporting of Palantir. You have to say yeah. to, uh, to not <laughs> kick up a fuss here. Maybe maybe they thought this was um, not worth kicking up a, a stink over. But yeah, it, it certainly felt like it was quite unusual. Um, and um, I suppose, I mean, is there anything, uh, you know, did you presumably context that have they said what uh, Matthew Gold's role will with them is going to be about? Is he going to be involved in the, the healthcare sort of side or what, what's he what's he going to be doing for them? So the, the, the advice given by Akoba was um, his appointment would have to be subject to certain regulations. So um, I think he left his role in September 2022. Uh, I think that's right. That's when he left so the NHS, wasn't he? Yeah, he had yeah. an emergency care role, I think, for briefly yeah. before then leaving finally. That's right. So he's got to wait two years from that day before he can become involved in, in sort of health policy work. So he's on the advisory board, but... Akoba have said that Matthew Gold's not going to be able to essentially use his influence and contacts or, or anything that he might know to to give context an advantage because Akoba did recognise that there was a risk that he could give them an unfair advantage. Um, so to, to mitigate that risk, they've they sort of put these restrictions in place that he isn't allowed to become involved in any lobbying with the UK government. Um, he isn't allowed to advise on, on the sort of health space. Mm. Um, how that's going to be enforced, I'm not sure. Um, how anyone would know if he did do that, I'm not sure. But but that's the uh, the advice that's been given. Yeah. And um, uh, do we know exactly when he had his application granted or when he actually started 
working with Quantexa? Because I, I think you mentioned this this happened in January and this has obviously just been published, which is why it's it's just news now. But obviously the timing seems interesting because January was when the Federated Data Platform procurement was launched. Um, so did he actually join the board in January or is he joining at a later date, did you say? It's it's quite it's quite hard to tell, I think. So he applied um, to ACOBA in January. Um, I think there was some kind of update in April that, that he had um, applied. So it, it seems to be somewhere between April and now that he's been appointed to the board. But um, contacts are only confirmed this week or, or last week that he, he was a member of the board, but not when he started. Okay, yeah, it's, it'll be interesting because if, if, if contacts are unsuccessful, in their bid for the FDP, of course, you sort of wonder they've hired a former NHS data chief. So are they going to be looking at other areas of the NHS or maybe Mr. Gold will be doing other things as well as health? Who knows? We will uh, follow it with interest. Um, but Matthew Gold's not the only NHS tech chief or former tech chief who has been out and about, <laughs> so to speak. Um, Joe, you also went to the uh, uh, the HET conference. Uh, is it H-E-T-T Healthcare mm -hmm. Excellence Through Technology? I think it stands for. Um, and we had first outing for Vin Devar car who's uh, the replacement for Tim Ferris and England's sort of de facto head of tech so Vin Devarkar now holds holds that that role um it was his one of his I think it was his first sort of big conference speech wasn't it really effectively yes. he may have spoken once twice at other events but they've been more closed um so what what did Vin say what were the uh, the highlights from that that particular talk Yes, yeah, so it was uh, it was standing room only for for Vin's talk. Um, it's, it's his first engagement since taken over from Tim. I think just only a couple of weeks ago, actually. So, yeah, he's interim um, director of transformation now at NHS England. Um, a, a lot of what he said was sort of a continuation of what Tim Ferriss had been saying. You know, he talked up the sort of potential of the NHS app and and how that's been taken up so far. He spoke about how you know advances in AI and things like that are going to be transformative in the future. He talked about ambient documentation. Um, that was a favourite of Tim Ferriss, wasn't it? Ambient it, documentation. It was, yes. you, you couldn't you couldn't <laughs> go to a talk by Tim Ferriss and not hear about ambient documentation. It was one of his uh, one of his favourites. Um, he he did speak about the federated data platform. Um, I think that was a bit people maybe were most interested in, and I, I guess kind of came out on the defensive almost because there has been a lot of criticism, has been a lot of concern, mm. and um, he essentially said that the, the the main thing would be to not make it something that it isn't. I think is what he said. Um, mm. So he talked about how it was going to be crucial for the future of the NHS, and it was going to be transformative to staff and patients. Um, and he said that um, uh, he added that the, there would be, you know, communications moving forwards about how to bring the bring the public along with them. Um, recently, the National Data Guardian, Nicola Byrne, had sort of criticised NHSE's handling, excuse me, of the procurement process, said that they hadn't been particularly transparent about it. You know, we didn't really know who's making the decisions with, with who's going to get this contract. So Vin... Um, clarified that there's between 30 and 40 individuals who've been assessing the bids um, mm. and that, that there's not going to be one person who's making a decision it is going to be a, a combined effort so um, a sort of big chunk of his speech was was devoted to sort of allaying some concerns about the FTP and, and sort of yeah. talking about the benefits. Yeah um, it goes to show that 
an interesting Linda, obviously not immune to all the controversy and the criticism that has come about regarding the FCP. Not to say that mm-hmm. it's not worth doing because there's lots of people saying it is worth uh, worth the money and is going to be transformative to the NHS. Um, but it's interesting that Vin sort of chose to, or maybe felt forced to kind of focus on that um, uh, so, so early on. Um, and we, I mean, the, the other person, of course, who is very you know, high profile in terms of the FDP is Ming Tang. And she was also, she's NHS England's chief, um, I think it's chief data and analytics officer, her title. Um, she was also speaking at the conference, wasn't she, the next day. So um, again, was there any any FDP uh, insights from her? Uh, more or less, yeah, it was, it was more of the same. Her, her sort of big takeaway, I guess, was um, that we need to bring, or NHS England needs to bring the public along with them. Um, it's clear that there's been an acknowledgement that maybe there's not been the level of transparency that they wanted. Um, and there is clearly a sort of concerted effort now to, to sort of push the message out there to the public. And um, Ming, Ming did speak about how um, you know, they need to do more to ensure that people knew why their data was being used, what it was being used for, and, and to see the benefits. And interestingly, um, we saw that um, NHSC's awarded a contract for about £360,000 to a, a PR firm for a, um, a communications campaign to um, increase the public awareness of, of data and public support for the use of data. So it's clear that the, the sort of spin machine's in, in full flow as we approach an announcement about the FDP. Yeah, and on that point, um, I'm excited that on the podcast we can talk about a very, very live story, which has actually only come out today. Obviously, we're recording this on Thursday, podcasts out on Friday, but we've had an embargoed press release uh, come through literally about an hour ago. But we can talk about it because this is only going out on Friday. Um, so, Energy England are going to launch a what they call quite a large public engagement exercise where they're going to ask the public to shape the future use of health data by the NHS. Um, and I think it says in the press release, doesn't it, Joe, there's um, among the, the programmes and topics to be discussed will be the federated data platform. And there's talk about two million pounds of funding to support the events. It's um, it, it seems like it, they want to make a big deal out of this. I mean, my my initial sort of question when I was reading this uh, that sprung out was sort of why why are they doing this now and not this time last year before the FDP was um, was sort of formally procured? I would have thought the information gathering might have been useful ahead of such a large uh, data procurement. Um, Joe, have you got any thoughts on that release? I know, bearing in mind, we've only re- very recently got it, so um, it, there's a lot to take in. Yeah, I suppose this is it's, it's just sort of building to the um, what Ming was saying about you know bringing the public along. I think there has been an acknowledgement that there are some concerns about um, not just about you know who's going to supply it, but about what people's data could be used for. I think people are more aware of their data now and maybe concerned about what it's used for. So I think there's there's been an acknowledgement. And I know that um, the National Data Advisory Group recently released a report where they said there's going to be a, a, an uptick of people opting out of sharing their data um, just because they, they don't know what it's being used for. So um, it seems like NHS England's just trying to get ahead of that and um, just sort of encourage the public to, to take part and educate them about what their data is being used for. Yeah, which which can only be a good thing, I think. It's just a question about the timing, which is slightly strange. Um, and of course, 
The NHS, the NHS has tried to engage the public several times, both locally and nationally, about their data. And it, yeah, there's only there's not many examples of such engagements sort of really getting anywhere. There's a couple locally, I think, which have enabled sort of local tech projects to happen, backed by you know lo local um, public uh, sort of opinion. But nationally, it, it always seems to hit some kind of rock, whether it's data or the GPDPR from a couple of years ago. So it'll be very interesting to see whether this uh, exercise helps um, sort of turn that sort of story around. So yeah, lots to follow up. I'm sure we'll come back to that on the podcast in the coming weeks and months. I think the FDP um, an announcement as to which company is going to provide it was due. We were expecting it this week, um, but as of yet, there hasn't been any news out of Energies England, so we shall see. Um, but thanks, Joe. Um, and turning from tech towards uh, maternity care, which of course has been under incredible scrutiny uh, in, I suppose it's gosh, the last year or two now, it feels like. Um, and Alison, you have found uh, what could be another potentially large red flag at many hospitals in, in the NHS. Um, tell us about your, your latest exclusive here. Yes, well, one thing I noticed looking at a few board papers and recent CQC reports is the number of cases where delayed induction of labour is coming up. And I had a, a fish around some recent reports and I found, I think, seven hospitals um, with CQC reports in the last six months or so where this had been picked up and some of those then been rated inadequate and a number of other hospitals where it had been discussed by the board problem seems to be um, ultimately a lack of midwives and if someone's induced um, where basically labour is started artificially they normally then need one-to-one -one care from from a midwife and uh, in pressurised environments where there are more women than midwives um, it can mean that inductions are either delayed starting or once they're started they're allowed to continue for a very long time and um, not speeded up and brought to to the point where the baby's born. Um, so in some cases, um, women apparently have been waiting um, several days for the induction to start and other women have had labours that have gone on for perhaps 48 hours. Um, those to me seem to, to be red flag incidents. Um, a delay in starting induction is very worrying because no one's in, induced without a good reason. Mm. And very often it is because the woman has gone past 41 weeks of pregnancy. Um, mm. NICE changed its guidance on this recently, which may have increased the number of women who need inductions. And they're now saying when, as you get to 41 weeks, um, induction should have been discussed with you and um, potentially started at that point. Um, that's because there's concern that from 41 weeks onwards, the risk to the baby and indeed the mother uh, does rise quite rapidly. Mm. Um, I think in the past, many units would let women go through to about 42 weeks before they started worrying too much. Um, also, it may be started because there are some complications. Um, you know, maybe the mother's um, suddenly developed high blood pressure and um, it's showing signs of preeclampsia. Um, some of those are in medical emergencies and should obviously be um, 
acted on very very swiftly indeed mm, yeah it, it's it's a it's a worrying story i mean did do, do, did you have any figures for how many uh, patients are having their inductions delayed as a sort of proportion of you know the number of inductions carried out or, or births given at the uh, do we have any sort of hard numbers around this or is it all we, anecdotal so far from, from the CDC we do have some trusts? hard numbers from some individual trusts mm. um Leicester which had a very critical CQC report last week and um, reported something like 1300 um, delayed inductions of late labors in a five or six month period Oh, right. um, that, that's that a lot. Sounds high. I mean, do, do we know how many how many births take place in that period? To I, it but it sounds well, like a high it, number. It's it's a large trust, um, so I would expect that there are probably upwards of ten thousand births in a, a year. I'm not mm. certain, um, but certainly thirteen hundred delayed inductions of, of, of labour in such a short period suggests that there is a a real issue there. Yeah. And one or two other um, trusts gave figures, but I don't have national figures on this. What I do know is that the uh, percentage of pregnancies which involve induction have actually increased quite significantly in the last decade or so, mm. gone from about 22% to 33%, I think. Mm. And there's some talk that um, since those figures, which I think were the latest were 21 to 22 uh, the, the the percentage has increased again. I've certainly seen individual units where nearly half of women are induced. Mm. So potentially we're talking about a, a lot of women affected here. Um, obviously, if induction is delayed um, and maybe you're in the early stages of labour and you need the induction to uh, move things forward, that can be pretty unpleasant for you. Um, what's really important is that maternity units assess each wo woman and her risks um so for example if you do have something like preeclampsia um god forbid or that you've gone well past 41 weeks and they still haven't started your induction that you're prioritized and given an induction as soon as possible i think what the cqc found was that in some trusts that wasn't happening gosh yeah and that that is concerning and, and it's interesting I mean, as you say, there's, there is quite a large shift then in the last what, decade or so, you said, you know, where that number of in the number of inductions has grown um, quite, quite significantly from sort of a quarter to, you know, at least a third or so, if not more. Um, but that's not been accompanied by an increase in staff. And as you say at the start, inductions mean you do need more one to one care um you know it's, it's i mean that's quite a sort of it's, it's not happening in line with with clinical need then by the sounds no. of it no well we, we know many units are absolutely struggling with uh, to get midwives um in the numbers that they need them um mm -hmm. so one can imagine if they have a number of women who spontaneously have gone into labor and they're already having to allocate midwives on one-to-one -to -one to care to them and then there's someone who's waiting for in induction that person probably ends up waiting quite a time. Mm, yeah. Obviously, I was just going to ask him. Uh, we've had the Ockenden review, um, which I think was was it last year. Um, is there anything? Was there anything in there about the the risk of this happening, or highlighting that it, this was becoming more of a a factor in maternity units? And did she have any sort of advice for what to, how how trust should respond? Was there anything in there about 
delayed inductions? Yes, I mean, basically, um, it called for safe pathways for induction if there were delays and highlighted the role of high activity or short staffing mm. um, around the, those delays. So I think, again, that comes back to the need to individually risk assess each woman and where she is in her pregnancy. Mm. Um, and whether that really does need to be um, accelerated quite rapidly. Yeah. So where 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 do you go from here then? So obviously we, you've found this has been happening in, in several trusts, as have the CQC. I suppose, um, you know, it's not a wildly inaccurate assumption to make that if it's happening in quite a few maternity units, it's probably happening in in many others as well. And it's just a question of, you know, finding these being reported or if, worryingly if they're not being reported. Do, do you think there's a bigger picture story here where there's, you know, the numbers actually going to be a lot greater? And is there any work going on to try and look into this? Yes, I think it probably is a, a bit of a tip of an iceberg. Um, I only looked for uh, board reports and CQC reports over a very short period, and I found quite a, a, a lot of them. Um, talking to some of the organisations around this, like the Royal College of Midwives um, Healthcare Safety Investigations branch, which has um, noted um, some of the issues with delayed inductions, um, no one can really give me a figure at this mo moment. It, doesn't seem to be collected or certainly not publicised by NHS England, although the number of inductions is. Um, so I think that's perhaps a, a little bit of a gap in the data there, um, which I hope we will be able to rectify in time. Hopefully, we shall see. Um, thank you. And Alison, just while we've got you on the podcast um, and on a completely unrelated subject to this, um, you also reported this week, because you cover the ambulance sector, um, you reported the departure of one of the ambulance trust's uh, chief execs. This was in the Southwestern Ambulance Service Foundation Trust. Will Warrender uh, is leaving, and they are certainly, if I'm right in thinking, one of the very more challenged trusts in the ambulance sector with poor response times. Do we know anything about his departure um, just, just before we clock? No, I think um, a lot of people are quite surprised. He came to the NHS about three and a half years ago, just under, um, after a very long and very distinguished career in the Royal Navy. Um, he'd served as a rear admiral at the point at which he, 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 he left. Um, he's gone. We don't know where he's gone. He 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 says he's uh, it's now the right time to pursue new opportunities. We don't know what those opportunities are, obviously. Um, the trust has struggled enormously in the wake of COVID. It's had incredible problems with hospital handovers. Um, you know, almost off the scale level of problems at points, and that has meant it's had very, very poor response times. At so some points, I think it's category two response time, which should be within 18 minutes, uh, was two hours. Um, there's been a lot of bad publicity around this. Um, the, the case that um, I think really hit the headlines was of a, an elderly gentleman who fell at home in his his garden and spent 15 hours waiting for an ambulance while his family um, put up a, a makeshift shelter to try and keep him um, warm and dry because it was raining. Um, that sort of publicity doesn't do an organisation any, any, um, any good. 
um, though the problems were probably not necessarily those of southwestern but more the environment in which this is operated in the, in the southwest yeah, um, yeah so i think we're we're now expecting to see an interim put in it um southwestern uh while they hunt for someone permanent to take on the role it's it's challenging being an ambulance chief executive very very few of them actually have the sort of professional background of having worked as a paramedic or having worked in any form on an ambulance i think there's only two at the moment um obviously anthony marsh at west midlands extremely distinguished paramedic and darren mockery of course at northwest um also mm. has a background as a as a paramedic Everyone else has come in as a manager, maybe with experience of managing within an ambulance trust, but without that sort of frontline hands-on experience um, that mm. being a paramedic or an ambulance staff member gives you. Yeah, and I don't, I mean, I don't, this is, I wouldn't expect you to necessarily know this, but yeah, in terms of tenure as well, it feels like they can be, certainly when Will was there for what, three years, I think you said, the yes, tenure just, doesn't tend to be much longer than that, apart from, as you say, Anthony Marsh, for example, who's obviously, yes, you know, Anthony very experienced, and it's, that's maybe a problem for the trust that they can't seem to hold on to leaders to make them, you know, it get does that experience. feel like there's been a rapid turnover in the last three or four years, I have to say. Um, I'm just trying to think if anyone has been in in post for very long. I mean, we, Will Hancock was there for quite a long time. I think it's about 17 years at South Central and he left earlier this year. Um, uh, South East Coast has had very rapid turnover. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, North East has had its its own problems. Um, Helen Ray has been there for, for some time. Um, I think uh Yorkshire has an interim chief executive in yeah. Peter Redding at the moment. London's got Daniel who came in a, two or three years ago. East of England, um, their chief exec started fairly recently. They're obviously a trust with long-standing problems, mainly around their, their sort of internal culture. Um, yeah, there's been a very very high turnover i would say yeah. um recently it is, not easy jobs it is a very challenging job of course and i do it feels like when you read these board papers from you know the likes of um Derryford hospital in plymouth and uh, trillius hospital in, in cornwall where ambulance handovers are i think probably the worst in the country uh, you know there's mm. only so much an ambulance ceo can do ultimately yes all the yes. bigger picture um, oh, very much so i'm actually going to the ambulance leadership forum which is the the annual meeting of um senior ambulance staff next week so i i expect to hear a great deal about some of these problems <laughs> i'm sure you will um well we're out of time so thank you very much alison and joe for joining me on the podcast um the hj health check podcast available on all the main podcast streaming platforms um do please let us know if you have an idea for what we should talk about so you can email annabelle.collins at hsj.co.uk thanks very much for listening and we'll be back with another episode next week thank you